Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about The Adjustment Bureau, starring Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Anthony Mackie, Michael Kelly, John Slattery, and Terrence Stamp, directed by George Nolfi. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. So all three of us being here leads me to believe that us recording this podcast is a part of the plan. Either that or just insignificant enough that no one wants to interfere. But I prefer that now playing is part of the plan. That is my preference. <laughs> I'm checking my little black book and the lines are going all screwy. I can tell what it means, though. Believe me, I know exactly what's happening in this squiggly little book that's going on. <laughs> I know. these bubbles and waves and I, it makes sense. Let me tell you, it totally makes sense. I could safely say this is the most anticipated movie now playing as ever reviewed. This review is nine months in the making. <laughs> that might be an inside joke to some of us, but we all know what we're talking about. This movie was supposed to come out last September. Things were yes. adjusted. Yes. Things, yes, our plan for this series was adjusted by doing it in the beginning of 2011 instead of doing it in the middle of 2010. Not just once. There was two release dates. It was going to come out in the middle of July, and then I think they saw Inception and blinked and then there was testing trouble with the ending that they wanted to fix and Damon wasn't available for reshoots so they pulled it from the fall so this is the third release date that it's had and believe me every time we had to do some major reshuffling for the Philip Dick series but it's here we're done we're at the denouement the conclusion the climax Woohoo! All right, sounds good to me. Well, we should probably start off before we do a plot summary about. Let's, let's talk about a little bit about the theater experience watching it. This is opening weekend. When did you guys see the movie? Last night, midnight show. I thought that I'd want to get a jump on it, have a couple hours to chew on it, maybe some rest. And you know, LA's weird that way. They'll have midnight shows of everything. I think in, in smaller venues, they'll only do it for big summer releases. But here, I mean, any movie that's coming out, they had people lining up for it and going. That's said i would say it was only a third of the way filled uh, kind of a date night maybe it was a lot of couples and the young young crowd mostly i saw it at 11 a.m friday um, first showing uh, of the day so not a packed theater 
maybe 30 people there, which was more than when I saw Drive Angry on a Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) But that's another story. Go to the uh, Now Playing Facebook page for that. A lot of elderly women, I, I perhaps they just get excited about Matt Damon. Perhaps they were excited because this was kind of a romance movie. But a, a lot of women in their 60s and 70s there. I think the women outnumbered the men, but but perhaps it's just because of the time I went. You know, I, I, I didn't go during peak hours, but I was surprised. I thought I'd be the only one in the theater. There There's, you know, around 30 people there. Well, I, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but a wee bowling is at 3 p.m., so they had time to squeeze in the movie in the morning. Yes. <laughs> Maybe they were just nostalgic <laughs> for the hats. Yeah. Those are some mighty fine <laughs> 90-bit hats going on. In this I, I'm not, I didn't know Jason Mraz as part of the Adjustment Bureau. Did you? <laughs> wow, it's news to me. I saw it this evening, opening night, and by the time the movie let out, it was about a third full, if that, if that. So I'd say not even a third full. It was 50 people when the lights went down, and then somehow about 75 more people, maybe 100 people showed up while during previews and stuff. And it was all people my age and older. I didn't see any teenagers, any kids. I'm in 30s in case people don't know that. I think they're gonna. the Adjustment Bureau is going to have to start fires in Rangu to get the audiences running out of there into this theater. I, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be number one. They're going to have to do a, a lot more than adjusting. They're going to have to, by force, I don't know what tidal waves, I don't know what will drive people into this movie theater. But folks, if you're listening and wondering if you can get a seat, you can get three. You can lay down <laughs> Chase Lounge style. You can see this movie any way you want. You could probably show up nude and no one would notice. <laughs> Treat it like your living room. My theater's only showing it in one theater. Usually the new releases always have at least two, if not three. Rango has three theaters. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So that's the one they picked. They saw Johnny, Johnny Depp's name on the top. Even if he's a lizard, they don't care. Three theaters. There you go. So why don't we start with a plot summary and okay. move on from there. Stuart, are you ready? I'll give it a shot. Matt Damon is David Norris, an everyman politician whose past youthful indiscretions fighting and drinking have just thwarted his chances to win a New York Senate seat. Preparing a concession speech alone in the men's bathroom of the Waldorf Astoria, David is surprised to find fellow free spirit Elise Salas, played by Emily Blunt, hiding in a nearby stall. They flirt and kiss before hotel security throws the woman out for crashing a wedding elsewhere in the hotel. David applies her devil-may-care attitude to his candid confession to supporters, he let pollsters and marketing people manipulate him too much on the campaign trail. The public likes his honest Dave much more than the empty suit they saw running for office, leaving the door open for him to try again in a few years. But David is about to discover that his political life isn't the only thing being controlled by bureaucrats. The entire course of human history has been manipulated from time to time by a phantom squad of stern-looking men in hats who ensure that everything goes according to a pictorial plan they watch unfold in little black books, the author of which is an unseen deity referred to only as the chairman. It was the chairman's wish that Elise meet David and inspire him to be the kind of politician who could ultimately get elected to the White House. But with that now predestined, Elise is never to cross David's path again. And she certainly wouldn't have if lowly adjustment bureau grunt Harry Mitchell hadn't fallen asleep on the job while David was making his way to work. One average morning. Set adrift from the chairman's plan, David not only has a chance reunion with Elise on a city bus, but he also arrives early at the office to find co-workers frozen in time and being mentally manipulated by the rest of the Adjustment Bureau. Richardson, a high-ranking member of the Bureau, threatens to erase David's mind if he ever tells anyone about them and insists that David stop dating Elise. 
but the hothead politician proves non-compliant, forcing the Bureau to resort to supernatural force to create literal and figurative roadblocks to the impetuous couple's romance. Higher-ranking officials are called in to explain to David that Elise will cost him the presidency, and he her dream of being an iconic dancer. The aspiring politician is prepared to make that sacrifice and leave it all up to chance, which is unacceptable to the cosmic tinkerers, and they resort to spraining Elise's ankle during a dance performance to make their point. David almost gives up, but ultimately finds an ally in Harry, the Bureau's suit, whose screw-up actually resulted in him finding Elise in the first place. Harry teaches David how to use a magic hat to access portal space throughout New York City, sneak past Bureau bouncers determined to keep him away from Elise, and steal the potential bride away from her new fiancé at the courthouse before she's married off. Ultimately, David and Elise must face the chairman's judgment on the rooftop of a skyscraper and learn that they will be allowed to write their own future. The Adjustment Bureau slinks back into the shadows as Damon and Blunt go off hand in hand and credits roll. Now, guys, let's rail it off here. We've had druggy cartoons. We have Arnold Schwarzenegger action movies. We've had arty noir. We've had lots of different styles of movies, a lot of different tastes catering to a lot of different audiences. And now... Now, somehow we found ourselves in a chick flick. <laughs> I, I am just constantly amazed by this Philip K. Dick series. And I got to say, having read the short story, this is based on the adjustment team. You can hear my thoughts of that over at Books and Nachos. That's not even how it reads on the page. But here we are. We are in a Matt Damon, Emily Blunt romance movie that just happens to also be a Philip K. Dick head trip. I guess first things first, how do we feel about this couple? How do we feel about Damon? How do we feel about Blunt? And do they have any chemistry together? Well, I think this leads right into the beginning of the film for me. We'll talk about the very, very beginning in a minute. But the scene where he is going to give his concession speech is in the bathroom rehearsing it. And he talks to Emily Blunt in there. I had a lot of problems with that scene. And I felt there was very little chemistry between them. I thought the line readings were bad. And I thought the camera work was just terrible. And the editing choices were terrible. So I'm sitting there watching it, trying to redirect the scene, wondering why their line readings are terrible. But then when they meet each other on the bus, I don't want to get too far ahead, but when we meet each other on the bus and from there, in the middle of the movie, I thought they had fantastic chemistry. So I didn't understand what happened between that first scene when they were doing that scene and then the bus scene and the other stuff later on. Brock, I'm right there with you. That bathroom scene, it just seemed out of place. This is the first time we're seeing them as a couple. And, you know, you got the chick crashing a wedding and running from security. Okay, it it seems weird. It seems out of place. But this is a movie all about things being weird and out of place. I'm not quite sure. I guess that's her personality. I, I know a little bit more about Damon's character at this point. You know, we get this big montage of him as a rising politician. But I was willing to go with you. I, I guess I wasn't as critical as you, Brock. I like Damon as an actor. I thought he was fine here. I, I thought that bathroom first meeting was kind of off. They hit it off a little bit, bit too quickly. But I was willing to give it that. I'm like, maybe there's going to be an explanation later. And I thought that explanation came, which didn't unsettle me as much as it seems it did to you. But yeah, th- their chemistry does get stronger as the movie progresses. I kind of like them as a couple, Brock. I don't know. I, I'm not going to be overly harsh about it. I think their repartee is maybe some of the best stuff in this movie, which might be more a statement of my thoughts of the movie than a celebration of, of these characters. But I, I do feel like 
I like her after their introductory meeting. It's funny to see a girl in the men's bathroom. It's funny to see someone who is willing to do bold things and dare and be big. And I can understand why Matt Damon rises to that occasion and decides to give, rather than the speech he was going to say, congratulating the winner and and acting like it's no big deal that he just lost Brooklyn, his hometown and and his state, and really just lay it out there of, hey, I've been manipulated and didn't get to be who I am, and it's too bad that you guys don't know who I am. I think I think that's a good way of setting up these conflicts, both the Philip K. Dick paranoia conflict and their relationship to begin with. I kind of liked it. I agree with you about Emily Blunt in that scene. I agree with you setting up everything. My problem with the scene was that you asked me about chemistry between the two of them, and in that scene, I saw little chemistry. Later on in the movie, I certainly saw and I agree with you. Some of the best stuff in this movie is the two of them together. Again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself on those specific instances, but in this beginning scene, again, it was the way it was directed. We have a shoulder, uh, I don't, I guess the headshot, I'm not really sure exactly how you call that shot, but it was just him and his shoulders, headshot close up on his face, then a close up on her face when she talked, and back to a close up, the exact same close up from him, exact same close up from her, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like a tennis match, until finally she sits on the sink and we get a, a three quarter two shot. And I'm thinking, why am I watching this student film? Film kind of direction, like an independent movie, have no money, only have time for like X number of coverage kind of shots. I don't know how to make it more interesting. I'm not a director. I don't need to know that. But that scene, that way it was directed, on top of I didn't really care for the line readings Matt Damon was giving based on what Emily Blunt was giving him in that scene. I was, like, baffled by that scene. But the information the script was giving me, and then when he goes off and does the speech right afterwards, I got I got the why everything was going on. But it required a little bit of work from me. I, I think what your concerns seem to be about directing choices, and I definitely want to get into that a little bit later. Right, right now, I'd, yeah, I'd like to just talk about them as characters, how we understand the people and how we're responding to them. I like Blunt right off the bat. She is Blunt. She is <laughs> in your face and and i appreciate that damon's a little tougher to get uh, your hands around the first shot we have of him he's alone and he's about to prepare himself for all the rigors of a of a day campaigning and Mm -hmm. they really set up his conflict in the movie he will eventually to confess to her that his whole drive to be a politician happened when he was a child his mother died his brother od'd he was grieving and his father took him to washington dc and said you can be a politician and i I think we're meant to fill in the gaps and say that his need to be a senator, his need to be an elected official is a way of gaining back the family that he lost. It's a weird conflict. It's a weird thing to portray in a film. It's not particularly cinematic. I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, I I understand that someone that goes through trauma and losing all of their family members at a young age – might be extroverted and and boorish and and demanding i'd like to have seen damon be a little bit more of that he's so nice guy here they're so concerned about him not being likable and not having you fall in love with him that i feel like hey isn't this a guy that just lost the election because he showed his ass literally like why can't he show his ass a little bit more why can't he be a little bit more of a scoundrel maybe that would mess with the chemistry maybe it wouldn't work but i just felt like matt was just too 
too clean cut to be from Brooklyn and to be the scandaled politician he was supposed to be. You, you know, Stuart, and I just want to start off saying I like the political stuff here. I was if this was just like a political thriller, I, I could have gone with it. I enjoyed that stuff. But I agree with you is we're told a lot of information, but we don't see it. We're told he's this impulsive, loose cannon. You get the newspaper flash how he got in a bar fight the first night he announced his candidacy. And but you never really see that play out in him. I mean, he, he uses the word ass one time when he's talking to a, a crowd of young kids when he's running. But really, he's known for being this Brooklyn brawler, impulsive guy. And the thing that ruins the election for him is that he moons someone. <laughs> like, I, I, didn't, I didn't get that. I was waiting. They're like, ooh, big scandal. In, and that in New up. York. This well, is this a scandal is in New York. governors <laughs> picking up prostitutes and they don't lose their job. And he moons someone as a college prank and it blows it. It, it doesn't make sense. Not to mention the scandal is eight years old. This is something he did when he's 24. He's 32 at the start of this movie. I mean, like, really, like, the last three presidents we have are all on record as having used illegal chemicals and, and one has a DUI. I don't think that mooning someone is really going to cost you the Senate seat. It's, it's unfortunate that they didn't trust Damon to be a little bit more of a jerk. I think what I needed to see from him was that he was kind of a sassy guy that had been spun by the people around him into a very clean-cut guy. And I wanted to see that difference. I wanted to see that when he was in Jon Stewart, he was one thing. And then when he was talking to his staff and grabbing asses or whatever, he was something else. And I did not feel a difference between his public and his personal persona. I didn't see that. And I don't see how I don't see how that cost him the election. That's what we're meant to understand. That's what Emily Blunt is supposed to provoking him to be more true to himself, more original, more bold. Well, I don't think he's that bold of a character. Well, also, as you mentioned, he was on Jon Stewart in the beginning of this movie when we talked about he was going to give a concession speech for losing the election. The movie starts off with him and all these real-life senators, news people, Chuck Scarborough from New York, the Jon Stewart, they had the Mayor Bloomberg was there in the yeah. movie. Everyone really was game to make his character fit into the real political spectrum. And I thought that was kind of fun way to open the movie. I think Damon called in a lot of favors from his political friends. And it shows, you're right, it's it's really authentic. These are real big figures and they're they're treating him like the character. It's cool. It really is kind of fun and cool and it really goes a long way to explain who this character is right off the bat. Great way to use exposition in this movie does it a few times is use newscasts. They found a way to do that and more. And I thought that was really great. Then they have this bathroom scene we just talked about afterwards and then, and then the movie goes on from there. It was really an amazing one-two punch for me to have the opening that way and then have this little bit of a lull in this bathroom scene and then as the movie progresses right from there it, it kind of has a, a peak in a valley and a peak in a valley it's interesting so at this time we get the first shot of the men in hats on the rooftop <laughs> yeah and i thought that was a really kind of a cool image how they're all in a line with the hats on anthony mackey is the um, the guy from the hurt locker uh, yep. john slattery the, the older man from uh, mad men they're two recognizable faces there and and I thought the way they were introduced got me to ask questions about what they're about, but at the same time, I knew I was going to get some answers. So it was kind of a nice, ominous way to bring them in. I kind of like that. Yeah, they first appear omniscient. They're looking all over New York. Like, it's their turf. Like, I think of them as running the show when I first see them. And I got to ask 
you guys. Do you interpret them when you see them as a positive or a negative force? Do they seem threatening or do they seem like angels? Do they seem benevolent? At first or throughout the movie? Well, let's start with in this part of the movie, the first third of the movie where they're manipulating Damon and trying to control him from reuniting with Blunt three years later and finding out what they're doing at his new job. For me, they just kind of seemed ominous. I didn't know why they were there. I didn't get a sense that they were a great force of good or evil. I was, pre- I was pretty neutral. For me, that's what this film was about, seeing why there was an adjustment borough, why they had to make these little changes. Uh, you know, you, you have the classic, like, Twilight Zone twist where you, you think they're the bad guys, but they're actually trying to do something good. So I went in. I really never knew. Yes, they're supposed to be kind of foreboding, and, you know, they're the men in black, and, you know, they got their hats, uh, 40-style hats, fedoras, or whatever. They're supposed to seem out of place. I really never got a sense early on what I was supposed to think of them. They were just these mysterious people showing up. I I, I really didn't know what to do with them. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I, I wasn't sure at that point, but I was intrigued by them, and I was really curious about what they're doing, why they're there, and what's what, in this first scene anyway. I thought it was kind of fun that we were kind of in on something that was going on, so the focus wasn't really on Damon and Blunt necessarily the whole time. It really was about a bigger picture picture and we were able to come in and, and, and look on it on that kind of view and that was kind of the part of the fun of the movie sometimes especially here about having the overall view as well as the two character view i agree that would have been an interesting movie if if i felt like that's what the movie had delivered if the movie had a larger <laughs> perspective than what was going on between these two people like a whole world outside that would be really fascinating unfortunately i do feel like the whole world ends up bowing to what these young people people in love need from their lives and and we'll, we'll get there when we get there certainly at the end it becomes problematic for me but I, at the beginning the adjustment bureau I, I was excited i like the way that they introduce almost from the start a hierarchy you know that slattery is playing richardson is the boss of mackie who's harry we know that he's his boss because he's kind of telling him what he needs to do and he mentions the fact that the guy needs to go on vacation and that's kind of a a bizarre concept because I don't think of these people as being <laughs> anything but this. I mean, I didn't know that was where do you go when you're God's minions for a vacation? I, I, I don't know, but it humanized them and it was almost kind of comical and it sort of sets up the fact that Harry's going to fall asleep on the job and not arrange the order of things to prevent Damon from getting on the bus from meeting Emily Blunt and from finding out what they're doing at his office. It was kind of a neat setup. And it should be said, this is the part of the story that is most like the Philip K. Dick original. Oddly enough, Mackie is playing uh, a part written for a dog. Originally, the adjustment team is actually talking to dogs and being like, you have to bark at this moment and prevent it. And the dog falls asleep. So I don't know how Anthony Mackie feels about getting leftovers from Marley and me, but that's that's (laughs) how they've rewritten this. Well, Stuart, let me ask you this, because you mentioned that these are like angels, but what what did you guys think they were at the beginning? Was this some shadowy government agency? You know, I believe there's a movie called Dark City that has a very similar premise where they were like aliens and they would freeze time and readjust people. I mean, did you think they were aliens? Did you think they were angels right off the bat? Because that was the last thing I expected. I didn't think angels. Uh, I didn't think aliens. I didn't think they were human. 
at all. But then they fall asleep and talk about vacations, as Stuart said. So I was a little bit confused exactly what, you know, and then if he has these special powers, why is he running after the bus? So, like, I thought they were kind of like superhumans, kind of, you know, or trapped in a human body. But never once did aliens or angels pop in my head until the movie asks, you know, about angels. Mm-hmm. Well, having read the the story, I, I was kind of aware of where I at least thought it was going to go. So I had a feeling that they were not necessarily good or evil. They were bureaucrats. They had to do what they were told. And the plan was this, and you have to follow it to the letter. And that's what they were going to do. And whether that creates good or bad is incidental to them. They have their own agenda. And so I figured that the conflict would be was their agenda is going to conflict with Damon's agenda. I want to say right here, though, this is the scene when he falls asleep in the park and he misses getting Damon to spill coffee on his shirt. So he actually, Damon does actually make the bus and see Emily Blunt. He's sitting in that wonderful park at Madison Avenue and 23rd or 24th Street. It's been a little while since I've been there, but it's one of my favorite parks to sit in in New York when I was in that area. And New York plays such a great presence in this movie. They really found some great, great background shots and great places in the city to highlight throughout this movie. And this is the first time when they found the perfect place, in my opinion, to have this scene. 23rd Street and 5th Avenue, they passed the Flatiron Building in the bus. It's just a wonderful place to have this movie, New York City, and they film it beautifully, and props to the team on this for, for showcasing New York so well. I, I agree. I love New York. I try to get there as much as I can, and, and they do show it off well. I think one of the things that this really strikes me about this is not only have they conjured New York of the present, but really a timeless quality of the past. It does feel, maybe it's the hats. I don't know. It feels <laughs> it feels like the 50s, too, and it's this and Blade Runner are the only Philip K. Dick movies that I feel that try to capture the time in which these stories were actually written, trying to go back to the 1950s and conjure that world into the present. And I think they do an excellent job of that here. And you're right. In this scene, and and really on almost every scene, I love the way they utilize the on-location shooting. So let's talk about this bus scene. Matt actually makes the bus and finds Emily on the bus. And I thought the chemistry in the scene sparkled off the screen like you wouldn't believe. I thought they were fantastic in the scene. I mean, how could it not with that skirt she was wearing? (laughs) The belt. (laughs) The belt, yes. Yes. I thought their back and forth was great in this scene. It it, it was much stronger, much better, much more convincing than the bathroom scene. I I like both scenes, but yes, you can see that this is going to take hold here. It's very hard to imagine that a brush encounter in a bathroom when you've just lost the election of your career is going to stay with with you. The thing about the, the opening scene is it's a little hard to believe that if you just lost the election, no matter how cute and charming that girl is going to be, she's going to be your primary thought. She's going to be the thing you think of when you wake up the next morning. It's, it's a stretch. I mean, I would definitely be thinking about my failure and what I'm going to do with my life. But, you know, in this scene, I get it. It cements their chemistry. It's like, well, yes, you are going to be smitten with her now that you've found her yet again. And because... Anthony Mackie has fallen asleep on his job, and because he did not spill the coffee on you, you made the bus, you get the girl, and this is going to be the fight for the rest of the movie. Blunt is totally charming in this movie. More than Damon, she really sells the idea that she's someone you would fight God over. Let me ask you a question. Did you guys get a Zooey Deschanel feeling off of her? Definitely. Or, I, I really did. And I at, at some time, and I did like Emily Blunt in this movie very much for all the reasons you said and probably more later on. But at times I was kind of thinking, was Zooey Deschanel not available? 
I've only seen Zooey Deschanel in The Happening, so no, I did not get that feeling from her here. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't see 500 Days of Summer? Oh, yeah, that was her, wasn't it? You're yeah. Sure, I, I sure did. This kind of character was written for her, in my mind. Like, she'd be the perfect person for this. British version of it, yes. But she yeah. was, again, I'm not taking anything away from Emily Blunt, but I got a Zooey Deschanel vibe off of her. Mm-hmm. I've only seen Blunt once before in Devil's Wear Prada, and I found her actually surprisingly similarly charming in that as well, although a, a different kind of character. Way different kind of character but i agree with you i think she did really really well in that movie she certainly took control of the scene she was in in that movie so then anthony mackie chases after this bus because he's supposed to get to the to damon on foot and then he flicks his finger and makes a coffee spill like he was supposed to and then i started questioning what's his range of his power ding, why, ding, is he, why is he running after the bus what are the rules what yeah. are the rules of these Bureau people. We know there's a hierarchy. We know that there's bosses over bosses and that the higher ups have more omniscience. They know more of the chairman's plan. They may have more physical powers or supernatural powers, but we need to know what's what. We need to have that spelled out for us. And God knows there's enough expositionary dialogue in this. Why can't someone lay it out for us? Why can't someone say, you can only do this and this and this, so you're going to have to be this far from Damien in order to make this happen don't screw up i mean that's all we needed we just needed to know how close he needed to be to damon to make what he needed to do happen but it's very confusing because on one hand these people can create car wrecks and traffic jams and walk through doors and end up you know on the other side of manhattan but on the other hand they can't stop these two from meeting on a bus it seems screwy well let's take a step even further back as it's revealed matt damon's character is very important to the chairman's plan so they couldn't stop the New York Post from publishing a picture of his ass? Yeah. <laughs> like, that kind of ruined things, unless that was part of the plan. Who knows? Maybe he wasn't supposed to become senator until a certain year. But they explain some things, but they don't explain enough. They don't give me enough of the rules. So I, I'm open to these plot holes, I guess, because they don't spell out the rules 100%. So at one time, they could flick a finger, and the ledge comes up, and people fall down. And another time, they can't. You know, with a movie like this, I don't want a whole lot of exposition because it's already going to be exposition heavy when you got supernatural mm-hmm. right that but i need enough so i know the physics of the world and i felt this movie just didn't give me enough they gave me some they gave me the, the very bare amount for them to do whatever they want freeze time not erase matt damon's memory right away they came up with some reasons so they just did the bare amount and that's going to be a common theme for me in this movie is they do the bare amount that they need to do but not enough to give me a satisfying movie or the, or satisfying physics for these angels before i said it was kind of cool how we get the one level of the adjustment bureau and we have the level of the romance and i think what they did was they spent a lot of time for the audience on the romance and they just glanced over the adjustment bureau part Stuart, you said before it would have been really great if they gave us that movie well in parts they did but at other parts they didn't Right after this scene, we have Matt Damon learning about what the Adjustment Bureau is when he goes to the office, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And so when they start giving us some answers, it was nice. I felt good. Okay, good. I know what's going on. But at some point, I wanted to watch the Adjustment Bureau movie more than the romance movie. And it would have been kind of neat to do that. And they keep flipping back and forth to it instead of staying on one track. I felt like the movie didn't know what to do with it. 
It's imbalanced. Here was a perfect moment for us to spend a little bit of time with Anthony Mackie's character. He seems important. He seems to be put in charge of Matt Damon. He doesn't seem to be manipulating everyone that's walking around New York. At one point, they describe themselves as caseworkers. And so I take it to mean that Harry is David Norris's caseworker, and he has been staffed to make sure that David does the things that are going to get him to be president of the United States will eventually find out. And so he is just as important to this as Elise is, and yet he does not get nearly the screen time, certainly not the character development, not even the personality. I mean, Mackie is barely giving us anything. He's playing a non-emotional creature, and he's not giving us any emotions. We're getting nothing off of him. It's very frustrating because I want to be sucked up into this world. I want to have an experience where I'm learning the physics and learning the way it works, and we're starting to do that, but they are not satisfying answers. They're not complete answers. You're right. It's the bare minimum. They're giving you just enough to get you to the next scene of him and Blunt, but they are not telling you how the world works. This is not Inception. And they write a major loophole for themselves to get out of these plot holes when they say some of it's our plan, but we can't watch everybody. Some of this stuff just happens by chance. I definitely want to get into that as we get to the end. Okay. But they wrote it in as if they were expecting people like us to scratch our heads. (laughs) And, And another problem for me is that, you know, we talked about how people have have caseworkers or only special people have caseworkers and they throw out a line that there's not enough of these angels these caseworkers for every person and if we're supposed to believe I, I don't know that this is all created by god or something that there's this plan they can't just make more caseworkers why is there a limited amount of caseworkers why is there like five caseworkers for all of new york nine million people and you got five caseworkers I would love that idea if it was played for comedy. I think that's funny. If you're yeah, treating, no, it could have worked, treating, but not here. If you're treating heaven like a bureaucracy and people are drowning and overworked and understaffed, well, that's just like my life. I totally get that. That's, <laughs> that's hilarious. I, I would love to see that. But but Anthony Mackie's not funny in this. He's told, directed to say you're not emotional, and so he is poker-faced the whole movie, and so we don't like him. We don't have an emotional response to him. We're not connecting to him as we would a regular character and ergo we are just not connecting to this world i don't feel like we're not connecting to the bureau and it is called the adjustment bureau it's not called david and lease in love i mean it is the adjustment bureau this is philip k dick this is science fiction this needs to be a major role in here so after matt damon makes the bus him and emily blunt gets gets her phone number finally this time and goes to work and he, when he arrives at work everybody's frozen and he catches the adjustment bureau in action and then they give him the first bit of exposition about what they are. The first confrontation, the first conversation between the Adjustment Bureau and Matt Damon. We get some explanation on what's going on. I like the way that this was introduced. I got to say, when he finally gets to the office, it takes him a little while. He's walking through his day and he's not looking at people in the eye. He's not even noticing that they're frozen for a little bit. I thought that was right. kind of funny. I, I did enjoy it. It's not until he walks into the conference room and they're literally got like flashlights in people's eyes and they're like, I don't know what they're doing. I think this is the first real problematic scene is why is the Adjustment Bureau here? Why are they changing things? They have a, an offline, throwaway line, something about the fact that they want to change the way that this venture capitalism business invests and that will change the world. Well, that has no payoff in anything that happens later in the movie. It seems really arbitrary that Mackie's screw-up would create him both re-meeting Elise and seeing them at the office. That seems like two things unrelated. It's its just a little bit too much. Yeah, it's 
it's that they were stopping him so not only would he not meet the girl on the bus, but so he would get to the office ten minutes late. And in the original story, there is no love triangle. It is literally just about the moment where he gets to the office and sees them tinkering with people. And, and, and they take it to a much further extreme. It's, it would be a special effects movie if they were to honor the way it was originally done, where people's faces are being altered and people will remember them as looking different. And the idea is that if they look younger, they will behave differently and, and behave like a young person. And it's crazy, and, and I invite you to go read that story. But uh, the conception here is they pulled back. It's not a special effects scenes or movie they're really doing subtle things they're tinkering with the mind right there's they don't seem to be doing anything other than changing thought patterns minimal stuff but we don't know what and we don't know why that morning i don't know why they wouldn't have frozen damon too why not do it when everyone was there they chase him through the office because he sees something that's not supposed to see john slattery pops up like an angel does in every hallway trying to talk him down a little bit and they finally decide to put him in a big room and just tell him the truth and one thing about this office scene you know Stuart, it surprises me that this would have been a, a special effects heavy scene if they followed the book or the short story when we saw inception we talked about inception there's that one scene where leonardo and ellen page where they're in the dream and they're watching buildings flip up all around them they're walking up and down it's like this mc etcher drawing and like i wanted more that that was really cool i thought going into the adjustment bar i was going to get these weird scenes where people are frozen you know if you guys have ever watched the great uh, television show not the remake of it but the original prisoner you know where you have oh, these yeah. weird things going on like i was almost hoping for that kind of thing so i got excited at the beginning of this office scene where people are frozen you have these i guess they're angels in riot gear that are chasing matt damon around just really cool visuals you know this, this weird combination of 50s art deco and riot police running around this building popping out through doors kind of you know matrix style in the second film with all the doors i i was kind of getting excited but but it is downplayed it's not a big special effects thing and i i was kind of hoping for more of that where we were going to really see the adjustment bureau doing all, all these big adjustments and it, they were going to be freezing people and throwing up objects in the way and, and just this weird psychedelia that philip k dick uses in a lot of his stories it's and a real it, shame they didn't use a really powerful image. It's, it, the way they're describing the book is not so much men in hats as a cleaning crew, and they have these vacuums, and they can literally just use the vacuums to suck away everything that they don't want to be there. And I'm just like, that is such a powerful visual. And there's different types there. You know, they have these guys with helmets on and batons and all of them. Like, why couldn't they have the cleaning crew there too? Why couldn't the adjustment bureau just the, be the managers managing the cleaning crew and the security guards while they were doing what they needed to do? I, I just felt like you needed a little bit more Philip K. Dick in this moment. It was a cool moment, but it could have been even better if they had kept it true to the source. So they have Matt Damon in this big room, and they just flat out tell him what's going on and tell him they can't speak about the Bureau. Now, here's my thing. I started asking questions at this point. If they're there to change the man's mind on <laughs> the solar panels, and they have everyone frozen, and they're doing all these scans and things like that, they could have froze him and changed his mind to have forgotten about seeing Emily Blunt on the bus... And this entire thing could have not have happened and everything would have been fine. But instead, they kept on saying about some sort of bureaucratic problems that they couldn't do that. Well, because they implied that they would have had to give him a full lobotomy. They couldn't just do a partial brain wipe. It wasn't men in black 
with the red laser. But they're doing that with the bald guy in the conference room. That's the whole point. That's what exactly. Well, what no, they, they, said. they said that's they were changing the way he reasons, which doesn't mess with memory. So then change it, the way Matt Damon reasons about this woman, and you have no problems. I mean, all they had to do was give her a real bad case of the halitosis the next time they met, right? And she's like, "Oh hi, David." I mean, like that would have solved it. He'd been yeah, like, "You know something. what, chick." I'm popping the Mentos. I'm out. This all I know is what we're really talking about here is chaos theory. We're talking about butterfly effect. That like if one little detail gets changed, it can mean a ripple effect that changes the entire universe. And and I just feel like these guys aren't forward thinking enough to realize all the different ways they can manipulate these people. They think they've got to create car crashes and all of that, but there's lots of ways to make people lose interest in one another. I mean, why not bring in another hot girl that emulates Emily Blunt? I mean, he is a, a rascal politician after all i just feel like all of these things are conceits we have to give this movie and so i agree to do that at this moment as they're explaining as much as they're going to explain about the rules this is the world matt damon knows something he shouldn't and he's going to spend the rest of the movie fighting them to get what he wants this is the conflict and we have to either go with it or not and i say the movie is good enough to go with it at this point I, I, and I agree, yeah. So when he's promised not to say anything, and you can live your life, just don't say anything, I was thinking, oh gosh, he's going to say something and the whole world's going to come crashing down and that's the movie. And that's like, okay, that's, let's see how this plays out. But it can't be that simple, can it? And we, as we go on, we find out it's not exactly that simple, is it? Well, you know, does Matt Damon even agree to play by the rules? I mean, he's demanded right up front that both you will never speak to us of again. And even if he wanted to, even, even if he ran around, this guy's an aspiring politician. Do you think he could ever run if, he, if you know, if he talks about these crazy people that come in and change your mind and do all this? I mean, nobody can run on that platform. I mean, that's why it made sense to me that, hey, let's just tell him. Yeah. Yeah. Because He's a politician. He, I, I thought, well, maybe is he going to start talking about it and he just becomes this crazy homeless guy with voices in his head because he's so paranoid. It makes sense to me. Why would you go around telling this to people? You can't do anything about it. Right. So why talk about it and come off as the crazy guy? More to the point, it's a joke about the political machinations that he's already well familiar with. He's already been told by 60 different people what kind of tie to wear, what kind of shoes to wear, all of this. I mean, he already knows what it's like to be manipulated. So how is this really any different. I mean, I I feel like that's kind of the funny joke in this is that he thought he was already being handled by 60 people. He didn't know that there was this other bureaucracy layer uh, beyond that. But the harder thing, the thing that he rejects, the thing that he cannot abide by is that they burn the phone number and he's never to see Elise again. And so he spends the next three years riding that bus, waiting to see her before it finally happens. Now, Can I just be really cruel and awful here? If he's so important, why don't they just kill her? I had the same thought. I mean, if he is that important, you know what I'm saying? Like, of course, they try to sell it like she's going to be a famous dancer and not to disrespect the dancing community. That's very different than a man who becomes president and stops nuclear annihilation, which is what they imply Matt Damon must do as his destiny. So as people that make these kinds of life and death decisions all the time to make sure that the chairman's plan works – If it's really this important, couldn't you just take her out of the picture? 
And they're the ones who killed, I believe, his father and his brother or his or his mother and his brother. Yes, the father was an accident, but they were directly involved with the death of his family. Yes. They don't have a problem yes. killing people. No. No. Yeah, they, they've done it before. If they're shaping him, if they're grooming him to be the man he must be to save the world from the fate of man being in, in charge of its own destiny every time apparently we take charge of our ourselves we end up with the cuban missile crisis so basically if he is supposed to be this great leader and nothing can interfere with that make that tweak she steps out in the street and down the manhole and we're done or even that just make her have an accident that she can't be a dancer anymore and has to move away mm-hmm. would he something. really love her if she got disfigured by acid or something no that's I, you know I, <laughs> yes i agree with you completely i had exactly the same thought why not just take her out of the picture somehow but they don't do that they mm-hmm. find another convenient reason to keep her around i lived in new york for many many years i was never aware you can stop a city bus just by saying, hey, stop the bus. <laughs> Never occurred to me to do that. Why do we have bus stops? I'm like, oh, stop the bus here. I want to get off here. Thanks, sir. Yeah, that, that doesn't work, huh? No, it, it doesn't. But you know what? Again, I'm giving this... What's your word for this? It's a... It's a mulligan. A mulligan. I have a whole bag full of mulligans. I don't even know what a mulligan is, but I'm handing them out (laughs) right and left because I want to enjoy this because I enjoy Damon and Blunt together. I'm like, you're right. I want to see them work. They're Romeo and Juliet. Their families are trying to tear them apart. This is what I have to go with. It doesn't really make a lot of sense as sci-fi, but let's see where they're going to go with it. I'm still there with you. I am still there with you. Let's see if they can make this silly, not really working concept have any kind of plausibility at all. And so the next battle becomes that he is supposed to go see her dance. He finds out that she is a dancer, and he's about to announce his candidacy for Senate. He's going to run again, and right after he's done doing all that press, he's going to hightail it over to what they call the Cedar Lake Dance Studio to watch her perform. And the Adjustment Bureau has knowledge that if he sees this... That love that he will form for her, this is where it gets really weird and whatever, that love will be so powerful, their own powers to deflect that will be muted. They won't be able to flip things and have as much power. That's as much as we know about the way the physics work, is that there are things that are so strong that happen between people sometimes, it's impossible for them to have any impact on it. And so they must stop him from seeing her dance, because she's that good, apparently. There's all this back and forth where they cut the power, and she's got to go practice in one studio, and then know it's back to the other, and, and Damon's chasing after that. How did this all work for you? Did this even make any sense well look here, here here's the thing that bothered me i i bought it fine they're they're making all these quick adjustments that's what i pay to see it's the adjustment bro i want to see them pulling off some crazy stuff but there's one point that it ends up being this chase as matt damon's trying to catch a taxi to get to the dance studio mm-hmm. and and they're making the taxis pass him by or there's accidents happening and matt damon at one point just calls him out and says well aren't you just causing like tons of different ripples which i thought would have been a cool idea where they would they have to sit there and try to calculate okay if i make this taxi pass him how is that going to affect the future and, and somehow maybe even visually show that again the special effects budget isn't in this movie really but but 
a cool idea that trying to shape his destiny, they're really screwing up the destiny of the world all around him, but it doesn't play out. They Again, they do that bare minimum. Matt Damon calls out the Bureau for doing that, but then it doesn't pay off. There's nothing to it. So cool idea, falls totally flat. Well, I'm going to go a step further. Before the whole thing starts with Matt Damon trying to catch a cab and they start showing us what the Adjustment Bureau can do to stop people, before that happens, they mention things like inflection points, a hell of an inflection point that would cause if they kiss. Mm-hmm. It would be a hell of an inflection point. These terminology that I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. And so then the scene right there with them trying to stop him from getting a cab and they go in and out of doors and they make the cut off the phones. And I thought that was a lot of fun. The two of them against each other, the team versus Damon. I thought that mostly worked. When Damon calls them out, I thought you were right. I'm like, yes, that, that kind of crossed my mind. But what really got me there was when they caused the cab to get hit by the other car and they stop him in his tracks because he's the only witness to this accident. It really showed how dangerous the Bureau can be and what they actually can do and how they basically were toying with him like a cat with a mouse by stopping him with the cars and things like that. Stopping Mm -hmm. him with the phones. The power of the Bureau was finally shown to us subtly but strong enough, jarring enough, that it should have woken Matt Damon up as well as a character. Because it really woke me up in the audience of the power these guys really can wield. And it's really just Richardson. It's John Slatterly from Mad Men. The way he defines it is he's cleaning up the mess that Anthony Mackie made because Mackie didn't do his job and fell asleep. He's got to be the one to fix this, and he's stepping in, and he's basically micromanaging Mackie. And I think he's losing focus of what he's doing. I think he is becoming a little emotional, even though they're not supposed to be emotional people. I think it's starting to be personal. I think he is willing to take risks with lives of others to ensure that this does not happen. You can see him kind of getting flustered with this. And again, I think it would work better as comedy played seriously. You're right. I guess it starts to make them seem more dangerous, but he's not ultimately the dangerous character. It'll be Terrence Stamp to really be the hammer when he shows up in the last part of the movie. But also in this scene, we have them running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to get into the right door because they hate downtown and they can't really find their way around as quickly. And again, what? Ripples, finding the right doors. They have limitations on their powers that they don't explain, but then they show us how powerful their powers can be. And it's kind of just jarring in my head at this point. So while things do work and I'm interested, they also find question after question for me and I need more explanation as we've already talked about. Yeah, you know, it was reminding me of Inception and not in a good way. I loved Inception, but one of my small complaints with it, it has so much information to convey, but I do feel when people convey it, when they speak in that expository language, I understand what they're saying. And this, all of the catchphrases and buzzwords and this and bubbles and ripples and this and that, it just sounds like nonsense. It doesn't create a world for me. It sounds like they're spinning bullshit and they're hoping we don't ask the questions that we're asking now. The premise is not holding water and they're trying to distract us, trying to ironically to not look behind the curtain when this is a story all about, you know, looking behind the curtain and finding out who's the controller. But Damon does make it to the Cedar Lake Dance Studio after running back and forth and sees because she does a couple moves, which novice dance person, I don't know what she did. That was so impressive. But Come on, you saw Black Swan. Was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it on par with that? <laughs> no, Natalie Portman, like, grew feathers in that. This chick just sort of... <laughs> 
moved around and flapped her arm. I'm like, no, that's that's not that magical, really. You got to cut yourself in the stomach to impress me after Black Swan. But I don't know. Again, Mulligan. It is a beautiful moment. They yes. go home together. They fall in love, and they finally consummate. They have sex. They're now a couple. Okay, here's my problem here, is that we were told earlier on that once they have this kiss, this true kiss, you know, very uh, Little Mermaid, you kiss your true love, and you're free. You get to keep your legs. Once this true kiss comes about, you know, they're looking in their book, and there's this ominous glowing red dot that represents this kiss. They can't get to that point. You know, they make it sound like the world is literally going to blow up as soon as they kiss. The heaven is going to crumble. God is going to die. And they kiss, they make love, and they fall asleep, and an old man looks at them. <laughs> like, it, it was so anticlimactic for me because they built up that you can't have them kiss, and then halfway through the movie, they kiss. And they bring in a tougher angel to deal with it. Wow. You've hit, you've hit a real problem that at this point. It's not a problem at first, but by this point, I really feel like the audience knows why they want this couple to be together. They don't know why they shouldn't want them to be together. They're working so hard for us to identify with this couple. They want us to like Damon. They want us to like Blunt. We do. But I think the person we really want to identify with is Mackie because Mackie is the one that's helping them out. He's enabling them to follow their bliss and be happy. But at the same time, his job is to keep them apart. And we need to have that same push and pull. We need to know why the world will be a worse place if these two people get together. And we don't. It doesn't really make any sense. I need for Terrence Stamp at this point to explain it. And God knows if anybody is, it's going to be Zod. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy that somebody awesome and actually threatening has arrived. After all of these willy-nilly bureaucrats and hats, you know, pencil neck geeks, we finally have someone that I believe could actually tear the shit out of Matt Damon and really get this set right he's called the hammer and i know that he can do some badness and it is kind of cool i gotta say the shot the actual shot of them finishing making love and falling asleep and then they pull back and you see Terrence stamp glowering over them yeah it was kind of cool from behind they did a lot of behind shots sometimes mm -hmm. you thought i thought it was matt damon standing a few times actually when they had him from behind the shot but there with the hat and the trench coat looking over the bed i thought it was a very effective shot i agree i thought Terrence stamp certainly did have the gravitas they called it upstairs to get the next level of Angel, Justin Bureau, Agent, wherever you want to call him, to fix this problem because this first level and second level of bureaucracy can't handle it. So they kick it upstairs. They call the uh, regional manager, and he comes in to try to deal with this, and they trap him in a room, and General Zod popped in my head instantly as well. I was thinking, just put her in the phantom zone. The whole thing is done. <laughs> but what I could not get away from, unfortunately, and it's no one's fault, but time, uh, even though he has that wonderful voice and he has the presence, he seemed rickety. He seemed like over the hill almost, like this guy is over his prime, but he still's got it. Ooh, you better hope, Brock, he don't come to your bedroom tonight. I'm just, gonna I'm take just care saying. Of you. I did not fuck with Stam. I'm not going to say nothing about Stam because I know he can kick my ass. He can kick your ass. Yes, I realize that. And Mr. Stamp, I think you're a phenomenal actor if you're listening. I know you're a big fan of now playing. So if you're listening, let me just tell you that I am a big fan of yours. And I think you're fantastic in almost everything you do. But here, I, and it could have been a character choice. I don't know. Well, here's what I want to say here. At this point, I've sort of seen how they've made a secularized version of the Christian idea of heaven like there's this unseen person that knows all the this chairman
heaven and there's these little angels that are sort of doing his work and watching over us and trying to make his God's plan a reality. I wanted Stamp to be the devil. I wanted Uh. him to be the other side of things. He needed to be fire and brimstone to me. And so when I see him over the bed, I'm like, this is going to be different. But then all he really does is kidnap him from the green room of The Daily Show and read him the riot act about how every time man is allowed to allow chance to lead his life rather than the chairman, the world all goes to hell. And I'm like, no, your job is not to rationalize. You bring the fire and the brimstone. You're the hammer. You be scary. You let this guy really know physically. You be the threat that he needs to be. And unfortunately, I was disappointed ultimately when they go back to the warehouse and it just ends up being, will you please not see her again and then let her go so he can get to the dance at 630. I was like, really? You're going to let him go? You're going to make him be able to go see her dance? But he does psychological warfare after that, which actually works. He, he sprains her leg. So, yeah, he gets to see that so she can get hurt. But but what he says to him is, you're not only ruining your life, you're ruining hers as well, which is what he needed to hear to stop him from seeing it. It wasn't about physically hurting her or physically hurting him to get the point across. He, he was playing at a deeper level. He loves her so much that he wants to have her have the life that she's supposed to have. And that was effective, and I thought that was kind of cool. So while you wanted him to bring the hammer of God, what it really was was a psychological hammer, and I thought that was an interesting play by the screenplay. I would have loved a psychological hammer if that's what they would have given to us. Here's my problem, though, and they get into this whole discussion of fate versus free will and destiny and all that. Right. They're unreliable narrators. Yes, they're angels of God, but they're unreliable. We've seen them screw up. They fall asleep on the job. So So how am I supposed to trust Thompson, the, the Taron Stamp character? How am I supposed to trust him when he's saying that Emily Blunt's going to go and become a famous choreographer and you're going to become president of the United States and save the world? He causes Emily Blunt to not get caught when she's thrown and she sprains her ankle. And Really, I, I would think that would mess up her chances of becoming a choreographer when she's screwing up her dances. <laughs> to me, these angels are unreliable, so the psychological thrilling ain't there. Because- but there is a hierarchy. I mean, it should be said that Anthony Mackie, the one that really screwed up, seemed to be the lowest on the totem pole. They bring Thompson in, and he knows more than they do. I mean, Damon's on to them. He calls Richardson out. He says, you're just following the book. You don't actually know why what's going to happen if we stay together you just know that it's not supposed to happen but i think thompson might know he has seniority and that seems to count he's closer to the chairman he's closer to god he's got his ear and so maybe just because i love stamp i did trust him to really know what was going on where all the other ones just look like bureaucrats and fools i as a viewer believed why matt damon believed that Well, let's talk about this confrontation between them because they get into this conversation of fate and destiny and how the chairman has to get involved with the world because every time humans are left with free will, they screw it up. They cause the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Holocaust and World War One and the Dark Ages. So that's why the chairman and the angels, the the Adjustment Bureau intervenes to show you know they gave them the enlightenment and try to set them on the right path. And you know what? I remember uh, you know I, I was a fly. 
philosophy minor in college, so many hours of debate on this subject. It's just muddled in this movie. It is. It's so muddled. I call this the hot fudge sundae and celery diet. They want to have it both ways. You can lose weight, but you can also eat ice cream and fudge. And I'm like, no, I don't see how you can have chance some of the time. And then some of the time, God is manipulating everything to get what he wants and knows how everything will turn out. It's an either or circumstance to me. I don't know how both can coexist and you're going to get the results you want. It's just you can't eat celery and hot fudge sundaes and think that that's going to work. And they say sometimes just chance intervenes, like I said earlier, so they give themselves an out for people like us who are questioning the way they're handling these themes, these ideas, and the plot holes of the movie. I kind of wish that's when they brought in Satan. If Satan could be representing chance and chaos and things outside the chairman's control, if that was Stamp... I think I would be really more invested in the second half of this movie. They just look helpless. All these men in suits in the end are just begging Matt Damon, please don't date her. Please. Please. I'll, I'll knock over a building if you do. I needed someone to be an ambassador for the other side if indeed this is a world in which chance and determinism can exist. I also needed more violent examples at this point of the disasters that he is going to cause. Because when they make the car crash and they sprain her ankle, that's as violent as it gets, which is okay, I guess. But for me at this point, I need Terrence Stamp to collapse a building because it would make more sense for this movie, for this character, if they're really mean what they're saying about the consequences of this man's actions following this girl and being with this girl. We have to see more as the movie goes on, more and more important consequences that could happen. And we don't see it. And, and Stuart, I think it's interesting that you bring up the devil because I actually thought that maybe Emily Blunt was put there by the devil because she has such a weird introduction in this film. <laughs> She's crashing a wedding by herself, hanging out in the men's room. It just seems so odd. I'm like, maybe the devil just put her there. I'm totally there with you. I, I expected mm-hmm. that view to come in at some point. Yeah, but she's like, temptation at least. She is. Right. Yes. She, yes. But my bigger problem is that if the humans, the earthlings are never meant to see behind the curtain, then why does it matter if there's free will or if there, it's predestined? Because they're never supposed to know. So, so for me, there's no way. If it was something where people knew they were being manipulated and they were constantly trying to fight to become free, they were trying to break out of God's slavery the whole debate would have mattered to me. But I did like it because going back to what this film is, this is really a romance. And I, for some reason, I've seen quite a few romantic comedies. I'm fairly familiar with how the genre works. And one of the tropes of the romantic comedy is that fate is a big thing. I I think that's a very romantic idea that you are destined for someone, that you are meant to be against all the powers that be, you're going to always find your way to that person. And so I thought, oh, maybe we'll kind of get this metatextual exploration of the romance genre through a science fiction filter and really explore the, you know, the mechanics of how those films work. And I, I really liked that idea. And it's, again, it's, unfortunately, th- there's a conversation here where they kind of throw around free will versus destiny a few times and then uh, it's dropped. They move on. Jacob, I totally agree with you. You think it's so great that you're fated to beat it. Together, pull out the book, 
Tell us how it works. Show us where the lines read and mm-hmm. let us see the world as it would be with them together and him not as president. We need to understand it because we're told that basically if he is satisfied, if he creates a family with her and feels whole, he won't need to have that family, that political family that he's going for. He won't have the ambition and the drive and the determination to be president and thus – Something terrible implied, never overtly said. I don't need it to be implied. I need overt. I need to know what the threat is. Nuclear mm-hmm. annihilation, extinction, what? What is going to happen that is going to be so catastrophic if these two kids fall in love and he doesn't become president? Because in my mind, a lot of things can be manipulated between the butterfly flapping its wings and it raining in Japan. It's like this isn't the only thing you need to control that could change that future but at this point he needs to pull out the book and we need to physically see what the consequences are and the movie either doesn't know doesn't care or is afraid to go there well i just wanted to interject here that they're focusing at this point in the movie on the romance more than the adjustment bureau and that's why we don't see it they sure are to the detriment of the movie exactly my point is that they decided to make this more focused on the romance instead of what it means in the bigger scheme of things. And that's why you're not getting these answers, guys, because they made a decision that they're going to make a very light touch of this very interesting idea to have this romantic story in there. Yeah. And, and that's the choice the movie made, and we needed more of the other stuff to make this movie really work. Yeah, we're two-thirds of the way through the film at this point, and I still don't know what the stakes are. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's yep. Yeah, that's right. You know, if these people really do have that kind of threat, then why at the end of this movie when we're chasing around do none of these Adjustment Bureau people use the damn power? And and, and it gets we're getting to that point in the movie where we're getting to the climax of the movie where Matt Damon decides to take a stand against the Adjustment Bureau to get what he wants to be with this woman and is willing to do anything he wants to, to, to do that and he teams up with Anthony Mackie to make that happen. And at this point we've talked a lot about the chemistry between Damon and Blunt. I like these two but here they're in the hospital Blunt just sprained her ankle and Matt Damon is told by Terrence Stamp that if you guys marry she's not going to become this choreographer. She's going to be teaching sixth graders how to dance. And you know what? And wouldn't if that they're... be so horrible? Imagine being a sixth grade teacher oh my god i mean this movie's so offensive to america it doesn't even realize can you imagine being common and how horrible it would be if you were just an average person i'm like whoa this is snobby here's the other thing though Stuart. if you're in love maybe you're willing to give up that dream to be with matt damon maybe you're willing to teach school instead of being a, a world famous choreographer but here's my problem damon he never discusses anything with emily blunt he just goes oh yeah maybe she doesn't want to have a normal life and so i'm just gonna leave so now i'm supposed to be rooting for this guy that obviously has communication problems (laughs) i want him to marry her when he's just gonna assume things and hold things in they're gonna end up divorced why do i care at this point now he's a bad boyfriend and this brings us to the end of the movie he walks away and then he comes back and i want to talk to you guys about what is the turning point because i feel like it got left on the editing room floor he's essentially told by Mackie that he can use the powers that he has to get her back. 
I'm going to take a leap here. I'm going to speculate on something. Do you think Mackie originally was the character that killed the mom? And do you think that maybe there is an emotional guilt? He's trying to be non-emotional, but there is an emotional guilt that makes him feel like he should fix it and give Matt Damon a girl because he killed his mom. To me, that would help the movie exponentially if that is the reason why he's helping out. Well, I think the movie at first makes us think, oh, okay, so his family was killed because they have this master plan for him. Then the movie flat out tells us that his parents were killed because of this. But they do not tell us that Anthony Mackie did it, and I completely agree with you. The reason Matt Anthony Mackie decides to help Matt Damon get Emily Blunt back before she marries the other guy is not explained. All of a sudden, he pops back in, says, today's the day you have the last chance to do it before she's married. God forbid she has an affair with the guy when she runs into him later on, but I guess that would be scandalous. Once you're married, it can never be undone. There's no such thing as divorce. No, not in this point. world. So, uh, but anyway. It's forever. Uh, you're completely right. There's no reason why Anthony Mackie there, and, and that's a great theory on why. It's one of those things that is not explained. It feels like a subplot that they said they just didn't want to go there, but it felt like a tension between Damon and Mackie. It's a reason why he would want to help, because right now, he already screwed up. He fell asleep on the job. Why is he further putting his job in jeopardy by helping the guy do something other than what he's hired to protect and do. It, it doesn't have any justifiable weight unless you bring in the idea of guilt, unless you bring in the idea that he feels so bad about maybe killing Matt Damon's mom way back in the day that he wants to give him a new life and a new companion with Emily Blunt. You also, the John Slattery and he have a share a scene about, you know, his get to you sometimes and things like that. Perhaps that's supposed to be the catalyst for him helping out later on, but that scene wasn't strong enough for me to resonate in Anthony Mackie's mind to make him transition over to help Matt Damon. It's a classic conceit in American movies of the person who's on the other side turns to help the protagonist. It happens in movies from The Empire Strikes Back to you name it, like Shane. You, you name a movie. It's a classic American type that people turn to help the main person, and usually they give a better reason. This one they don't. Uh, these Adjustment Bureau guys, they feel kind of like Spock. They claim they're not <laughs> emotional, but they're going to cry at the very special moment. You I mean, they got emotions here. I feel like you can't have beings that have no attachments to the people, the cases that they're overseeing. It may be not their job to be their therapist, but they're there. They're present in these people's lives, and I can't believe that Mackie is not having some kind of empathy and bonding with him when he's training on him on how to use the hat, how to use the doors in downtown, and how to get the girl and go do whatever they're going to do for the short amount of time they have before Matt Damon has his whole mind wiped. Yeah, so Anthony Mackin trains him to figure out a way to get to where she's going to get married in the courthouse by using his magic hat. If he wears the hat and turns the doorknob to the right, he can use the doors like Monsters Incorporated and jump all around the world. <laughs> and I thought it was a cool idea, this door thing, and then they have a chase through the doors. My question this, this time when he mentioned the hat is the power, well, if they mentioned they were around in the Dark Ages, what were they wearing on their heads? Was it like a, a leaf uh, crown? they had a Julius Caesar? Why is it hats? <laughs> I, I knew the hats were important because there's that scene earlier on during a chase scene where the hat falls off and he has to run back and go get it. I go, okay, those hats mean something. So, yeah, it's dumb, but again, <laughs> they set it 
it up earlier. They had okay. this clue. They can set it up. So yeah, so I like okay, whatever. At least maybe now we're gonna get an exciting chase scene. We're studying lots of different doors, and you turn it one way, it's good. You turn it the other way, it's bad. Even though some doors are just the push style ones, but whatever. <laughs> but also, they said anyone in a hat could be a guy in a bureau. Don't trust anyone, even if it's in a ball cap. They set up in the scene, Jacob, that even guys in ball caps can be agents. So don't trust anybody or don't listen to anybody who's wearing a hat. But during this chase scene, remember the agents in the Matrix, how they can turn into anybody else at a flick of a moment? And they do. And how cool that is when the agents just constantly keep surrounding people and changing from these regular people into the into those people. Here, nobody with any sort of hat was a threat during the chase at all, except the Adjustment Bureau with their fedoras. So they set that up too, Jacob, but they don't pull that off either. They would have, How cool would that have been? Here, here's the other problem. They set up a lot of stuff for this final chase <laughs> that does not pay off. They break one of the you know screenwriting 101 here. You show the gun in the first act, it's got a fire in the third. They set that up with the hats, Brock. Here's the other thing. There's that instance where Matt Damon's like, well, if they're chasing me, they're getting close, I'll just knock off their hat and run through a door. And he's like, ooh, improvisation. We're not good with that. That's good. So I'm waiting for this big improv scene where he's got to just make up something on the spot. Never happens. This ending bit sort of says it all for me, really. It's like, at one hand, it's lovely to watch, to watch them run through doors, and now they're in some kind of sports arena. It's a gorgeous visual to watch people run through doors, and, and sometimes they're closets, sometimes they're giant expanses. And, and the visuals, there's not many special effects in this movie, but these are seamless. They do feel beautiful when you're passing through. But yes. they're going nowhere. And they have all these opportunities to go anywhere they want, and it doesn't seem to matter, and they go out everywhere and nowhere, and I'm like, that's this movie. It's gone everywhere and nowhere at once. It has all these ideas, it has all these things it wants to get to, and it really never spends enough time in any of them for it to matter. It's just endless running through doors, and I just felt like, yeah, that's the movie. But eventually, they find the home of the Adjustment Bureau, right? It's like they get to the building where these guys actually work and do, and presumably where the chairman lives and presides overall. Before that, though, Matt Damon finds her at the courthouse, convinces her very quickly to trust him again. Then they go through all these doors, and then she's freaked out, but then she, again, very quickly trusts him, goes through the door because of love. Yeah, it brings it back to the original. He's being wild and impulsive like she was. She's now in the women's bathroom, and he's in there. I mean, it, there's a symmetry to it. It's, sure. It she kind was of crashing means- a wedding. He's crashing her wedding. I like yeah. that. I like that yeah. symmetry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's satisfying from a screenwriting standpoint. I enjoy that. Yeah, it's a lot to expect this character to be able to process everything she's about to learn. Hey, everything that Matt Damon's been learning and doing for the last hour of this movie, you need to get that right now. You have 20 seconds to accept that and then still say, yes, I want to date you. Brock, you saw this most recently out of the three of us. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember this line. When he's learning how to use the doors, Matt Damon's learning how to use the doors, they say, you turn it clockwise, you'll be able to go into another part of New York. If you turn it counterclockwise, I believe he says, you enter chaos or, or it's something chaotic happens. Yeah. So we get to that point where you know it's crossing the streams. You know yes. he's going to have to turn it counterclockwise. Yes. And he does that. I- I'm waiting for they're going to enter hell. This is, you know, Stuart, finally we're going to see the devil here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're going to release the devil into the world and it's going to destroy this plan. No, 
they just enter into the actual office building that the chairman and the, the adjustment bureau works out of. Right. Like, how is that chaos? You say chaos to me. I have a very different connotation than you walk into an office building. It was a huge disappointment. Also, apparently the angels or adjustment bureau techs, whatever they're called, in their office building have no powers. Zero I powers. Guess, I guess they don't, do they? No. They have to chase around after him, and somehow they just don't once flick their hand to close a door, move a desk, move a chair, move a file cabinet, make the floor slippery, nothing. I'm mad we never see the Wizard of Oz. You know, you know, finally we end up on the roof. Let's just end this movie. Yeah. We end up on the roof, and it's for Thompson and for Harry to come out and explain that God's like, okay, you can be together. Like, after all of that... Like a soccer mom who bends over and says, all right, I'll buy you the toy because you've screamed long enough. Bad parenting. Okay, you can have the future you want. I'll give it to you. Shut up. And that's the end. There's one thing I did like about this. The plan gets adjusted once more where they're allowed to be together. And you get that point where Harry hands Thompson the new plan, the letter from God, the chairman. And he looks at it. And if this was your traditional American action film, isn't that the point where Thompson says, no, you you can't change the plan. We must stick to it. And he rebels against God and it becomes he becomes the big monster and it becomes the big fight. I mean, that's what I'm expecting at this point. And, he, and he's kind of like, wow, oh, really? OK, <laughs> OK, I'll go along with it. Cool. Bye. That's not what I thought was going with it. I thought the kiss there, they're surrounded on the roof by the agents and then they kiss and that kiss makes that big ripple they talked about earlier. Therefore, gives the God guy the idea that, you know what? Why don't I just change the plan? That's what the whole movie was to fight and the fight and the fight and to keep this plan. And at the end, the movie guy's like, yeah, I'll change the plan. I did not expect him to turn into a dragon like the end of a Sleeping Beauty and start fighting him as a hero. Uh, but I did expect George Clooney to walk in as the chairman. I, <laughs> that's what I expected. Yes, or Alanis Morissette like in Dogma. At some <laughs> point, you need to see the chairman. But I did like how Matt Damon asked Anthony Mackie, are you the chairman? Yes. I was like, is that where they're going to go with this? How disappointing. But thankfully, he said, no, he wasn't. So God, we're told, has already come to them. He implies that God will assume a form and everyone gets to meet them at some point in their lives. To which I say, well, why not show us a character from the beginning, like his childhood friend, maybe? The character that we've been following the whole movie that actually never served any purpose in the story whatsoever? Why can't we have a character and then wink at us and at least hint at the fact that's probably the chairman? I don't leave this movie trying to guess which character was the chairman. I leave this movie going, that was an easy way out of a very complicated situation. They needed that wink to the audience of, this guy's something different. Then he appears. And we talked about how they had to reshoot some scenes for this. And when I was doing my research, I wanted to see what they had to do. And apparently they changed the ending. Yeah. Apparently in the original ending, they did show God and it was a woman. Is that what they changed? Really? That's all I could find out. I heard they changed the ending and in the original ending, there might have been more there. But the original ending, they do show God and it was a woman. I guess that was the big twist. I, I guess, you know, that would have been a big deal in the 90s. Yeah, that's not a big deal. No, no, that's that's not your ending. Uh, and they're right to reshoot that. But this isn't your ending either. It really feels like, again, they got everything they wanted without there being any consequence. It's like, you have to do it this way. This is the plan. No, you have to. No, you have to. No, you have to. No. Okay, here. <laughs> and this is the point where my opinion of this movie was adjusted. Is mm -hmm. you get this narration at the end. You get more exposition at the end. 
the end. By the ending, you shouldn't need exposition. You shouldn't have to be told what's going on. You know why no one likes Matrix Reloaded? is because it's 20 minutes of exposition at the end. I don't want to hear narration at the end. At this point, I should know all the rules. I should know what's going on. I should be able to follow the logic. But no, I have to be told, God changed his mind, and here's the plan, and it's changing, and it's disappeared. I don't want that. I just want to be able to know what's going on at this point, and I don't. And you set up a movie where there's supposed to be this big reveal, there's all these secrets going on, and the secrets suck? Well, it ruins everything before that where I was going with it. It destroys all that. It takes the faith you had in this movie to give you the answers, at least some answers that are satisfying, and it pisses it all away. Before we get to actual recommendations, I just want to mention something I mentioned a little bit earlier. In the beginning of this movie, I thought this beginning scene in the bathroom was the reshoot. I thought I thought was the reshoot because it didn't feel like the rest of the movie to me. I mean, I wasn't very satisfied that it was directed. So after I finished the movie, I came home and I looked on Wikipedia about, is this director a first-time director? And sure enough, he has very little experience. He has no feature film experience directing. He was a writer on Ocean's 12, and he wrote this movie as well. He produced this movie. This is his baby. And it just felt like an inexperienced hand was at work here and not that he didn't do a lot of things right he certainly did but to me as a moviegoer i just felt the direction wasn't as strong in all aspects of this movie none more than here at the end i think maybe someone with a little more defter hand or experience uh, could have helped this movie along quite a lot i had to look it up too brock i didn't know what this guy had done before he did oceans 12 he did uh, i believe the born supremacy the last born film screenplay screenplays but he, he didn't was like one of four of those people he wasn't the only guy in that okay right? But this felt like it was done by someone that has done sequels where you don't need the development because you have a movie or two previous that's done all the development on the characters in the story. And, and that's how this felt is that there's so much stuff that needed to be in there that was just missing. Like there was some movie I should have seen before to explain everything that was going on in this. This is a screenwriter making his first foray into directing. And typically what happens, and that's the case, is you do a little movie, you know, a little character thing. Somebody dies, <laughs> they learn about the meaning of life and like that kind of thing you don't give him 60 million dollars and say you're directing a romantic comedy action matt damon philip k dick story head twist story i mean that's a lot of different hats to wear and he's working as the director and the screenwriter on this and i think you sense him being overwhelmed here i know i felt overwhelmed by the material and you see all the potential and it is sad that he did not have somebody else I think that could take his material and his best ideas and streamline them and make this the really great movie that it could have been, or at least the better movie that it should have been. It's like my problem with Minority Report is that, okay, we got the happy ending, but murder has returned, and let's at least show that that's the consequence of a happy ending sometimes. It does feel like that only times 100. In Minority Report, it's a gripe. Here, it's a problem. So, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend the Adjustment Bureau? Stuart. Ah, you know, I'm disappointed. I was hoping to be able to recommend and have a larger average of movies I've loved in the series than not. But here's the honest truth. Nothing about this movie is particularly bad. I didn't leave angry. I was frustrated. But it's a fine watch at home. This is an airplane movie. This is something to watch on your iPhone. This is something that looks a lot better in lower expectations. I think it's a fairly decent romantic story for that kind of thing. I think there's real chemistry here. But Come on. This is a Philip K. Dick retrospective. I'm looking at this as adaptations of his work, as looking at the way identity and and all of his themes play out. And as such, 
no, I got to go not recommend on this. They did not achieve that vision on screen. It is not a successful movie. Mild not recommend. Jacob. Looking back on the films we've done with this retrospective, do I want to throw this in the same category as Paycheck and Next <laughs> and Impostor? Uh, you would you know, be a real bastard if you did. It's yeah, funny. I mean, that that's the problem with now playing. We, we either do recommend or not recommend. And there was a lot I liked about this film. I, I didn't mind that it was a romance. I kind of liked that romance story. And if this was just a straight romance and they developed more of the political and the romantic stuff – I think there is a movie there that I would have enjoyed if they would have taken the more sci-fi fantasy stuff with God and, and the angels and really developed that more. I would have really liked that film. Unfortunately, they just took a little bit of each. A lot of the ideas just seem underdeveloped. And I think you said it right, Stuart. This is a Philip K. Dick movie. The ideas need to be big. I was willing to give this a recommend until that last two minutes of this film where all the mystery just falls flat. It's anticlimactic. So mm-hmm. I, I, too, give it a my Mild, not recommend. I fall in that same category. Watch it on the plane. Watch it at home. But mild, not recommend. So while watching this movie, I came to the same conclusion as you guys did, that ultimately the movie was disappointing. For everything they introduced us to, it was ultimately unsatisfying at the end. There's a lot of good stuff in this movie. And the more you think about it, as evidence in this podcast, the more nitpicky you can get because it just doesn't all add up. So while I did like a lot of things in this movie, and while I did like a lot of the chemistry, and I liked a lot of the themes and the ideas, at the end of the day, it was unsatisfying. It was all right, and that's just it. This movie's just all right. So I am in exactly the same place. Is a mild not recommend, and definitely a disappointment, given what we were introduced to in the beginning of this movie, and all the chances I gave for it to be a satisfying watch, it just didn't follow through at the end. Now, of course, this is the ending for Philip K. Dick right now, but this will not be the last movie being a Adapted. We know they're already rebooting Total Recall. Right. They have just optioned the Blade Runner properties. It could be a prequel or a sequel coming out. They're planning to do more within that universe. Michelle Gondry is actually going to make what is considered Philip K. Dick's best novel, Ubik. He's going to bring that to the screen. He's been giving a big budget to do so. And I just think, wow, you, you got a crazy visionary taking a crazy man's wild ideas and a lot of money. That's going to be something. Maybe this isn't the last Philip K. Dick we do. We, we could come back if the projects look right. It's got to be a good one. I'm not going to come back for another next. I'm not going to come back for <laughs> Screamers any, 3? No. <laughs> if, but, you know, maybe, maybe this is just the first leg of a longer series yet to unfold in the future. I gotta say that throughout this entire project, I'm really happy we got a chance to do this sort of thing with different kinds of directors, different kinds of movies. We don't often get a chance to do movies this disparate with a common theme. And that was the idea going into this, and I'm really glad we had a chance to do it. I'm really happy we had, the three of us had a chance to do it together on a long series. And if those projects do come to full fruition, yeah, maybe we can come back and revisit it. And I hope the audience will look forward to that as well. So all of that leads is where do we go next, Precog? So tell me, what is now playing's next series? Because I think everyone knows, we said it last Halloween, we're going to do Scream. We know that, that the fans are looking forward to Scream 4 coming out April 15th. And yes, we're going to do that. But next week, we're going to do something else. Arnie is very excited to come back on board. He's got a top secret project he can't wait to unfold he's going to start a huge epic series that he's just giggling about longest 
just yet. Long I don't, I don't think we should yet. tell them. I don't think we should tell them what it's. You, you're just gonna have to turn up. You're just gonna. You're not gonna be able to see it beforehand. Just download the show and just prepare yourself for something major. You can't even envision. It's a future. It, it will blow your mind. Just know this. You're Ben Affleck, and I just gave you an envelope with some junk in it. <laughs> now playing biggest show of all time starting next week so prepare for that before we get the scream you got that to look forward to yeah and i just want to say one more thing in a completely separate tack as many as you know we have jay is our editor on this series and he has been around for quite some time working on karate kid and uh, other series we have done fortunately for jay he has got an opportunity for he's going to have to move on from now playing a real life has has given him a full house and he's going to move on from now playing so we want to give a big thank you to jay for all the work he has done for us on this series and other series. Jay, we appreciate everything you've done, and thank you for the hard work and your time and your input. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. And because he is leaving, we need new editors on Now Playing. As you all know, Arnie and I both do a lot of things from Venganza. Some of us, sometimes we just don't have the time to sit down and edit these shows to the quality and to what you expect of us as a team and what we expect of ourselves as a team. And we need people who are willing and able to step up to the plate and help us out as editors on our now playing upcoming retrospective series. If you're over 18 and you have some experience in that sort of thing, please drop us a line at show at nowplayingpodcast.com with a little bit about yourself and what kind of experience you have. Serious people only. So please drop us a line if you're one of those kinds of people and we look forward to hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and download the other Phil K. Dix shows. Please go to Facebook and join the conversations. Go to our forums. You can find a link at our homepage to join in these conversations. If you like our shows, donate to us so we can help keep us on the air. In the bottom right-hand corner of our homepage, any amount would do. Anything you can give, we would appreciate because these are not free. Servers cost money, time, movie tickets, all that sort of thing. And we would appreciate anything you can give. But if you can't, please continue to download us and enjoy our programs. Jacob, Stuart, it has been a pleasure to be on this series with you. And I look forward to the next time the three of us can talk about anything, whether it be Philip K. Dick or whatever other series we talk about in the near future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. The best mindfuck yet. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our reviews of other classic movie series including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. We hope you enjoyed the ride! You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as announcements of new episodes. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series podcasts are edited by Jay. I've seen every possible ending here. None of them are good for you. The films discussed in this series are the intellectual property of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. Now playing is copyright and trademark Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011, all rights reserved.
at any time during this, if you need to adjust something, just let us know. <clears throat> is, is that joke going to get old eventually? I think it might. <laughs> I think it might. This, this is for Jay to determine. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only one that hasn't seen Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> <laughs> You weren't on that retrospective series, yes, were you? We will, we will be doing that uh, next, right? Next week? The, yeah, the Fashionista <laughs> retrospective series. We'll do mm-hmm. Zoolander, we'll do that one, and a whole bunch of Con- others. Confessions of a Shopaholic. Can't yeah. <laughs> God help us know. So I'm waiting for this big improv scene where he's got to just make up something on the spot. Never happens. <laughs> An improv scene where he has a fake phone and he's calling somebody. That's, he's like, <laughs> I, I need an occupation. And I need a color. <laughs> Some kind of sports arena, and next they're at a. Sorry, coach stop, check. stop, stop. Yankee Stadium is not I had some no sort idea. of sports <laughs> arena. It's Yankee Stadium. Oh, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> at some point, you need to see the chairman. In my mind, it was George Clooney. I was thinking, okay, now if they can't get Clooney, which they probably can because it's gonna, it's Matt Damon. Who else can they get that has the gravitas to be the chairman at this thing? If Sinatra was alive, of course, Sinatra, right? Because he's the chairman of the board. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. <laughs> 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 that, that would up, be okay Cap? I guess that would actually work what in my up, mind Maddie? Sure. but in my mind I was like has to be Clooney has to be Clooney we're gonna see Clooney and Clooney never showed up to me this is like watching the story of World War II and finding out Winston Churchill didn't become Prime Minister but got the showgirl it's like well that's great but the Nazis won like I, I you know like I'm glad Matt Damon is going to have some really good sex and crash some weddings <laughs> but, but if the world's gonna blow up because he wasn't president, uh, maybe not the best ending for the story.